0: Have you ever faced a time in your life when you were absolutely desperate for God's help? And no, I'm not talking about like today when you pray, Lord, please help us beat the Packers this afternoon. I'm talking about those times in life when you are just absolutely desperate. And all you can do is cry out to God for help. I can recall three times in my life where I've been in that position, where I've had no other recourse than to just cry out to the Lord. I I think of the time seven years ago when my mom called me one afternoon, just desperate on the other end of the line, Jason, I think your dad is dead. They're rushing him to the hospital in an ambulance. And I'm two hours away, and all I could do was pray and cry out to the Lord. And then I remember... Just a few years ago when my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and trying to call my brother to share the news and i couldn't even get the words out i was just so broken inside and again all i could do was just desperately cry out to the lord jesus help us and then just a couple of years ago as my wife had gone through all of her treatments and she'd had chemotherapy and surgery and and then the last step that they had to do for her with the, the seriousness of her cancer was, was six months of radiation therapy, but they didn't wanna do the radiation therapy unless everything that they had done before had worked. And so we went to the hospital for a PET scan one morning. And that PET scan was gonna tell us whether or not she could continue treatment or not. You know, that's a, that's a desperate place to be when your whole life hangs in the balance of one test, and its results. And you know, when you find yourself in those times of life where all you can do is cry out to the Lord for help, that, that that's a scary place to be. You you realize that so many of the circumstances of our lives are are so out of our control, and and oftentimes all we can do is cry out to the Lord. I know many of you have experienced those times in your own life, whether it's uh, the loss of a loved one or battling a a serious illness, dealing with a a rebellious child at home, or or maybe a a threat to your marriage. In these times, we're desperate for God's help. And I can imagine that Jonah must have experienced this same kind of desperation as we find him at the outset of our passage this morning, here in Jonah chapter 2. If you recall our story from last week, Jonah chapter 1. The story of Jonah begins with God calling the prophet Jonah to go to the land of Nineveh, to the great city of Nineveh, and to minister a prophecy against the people of Nineveh for their wickedness. The Ninevites, the Assyrian Empire, they were, as I said last week, they were the ISIS of their day. They were brutal terrorists. And God had called Jonah to go And declare his judgment against Nineveh. But see, Jonah, as a prophet of God, understood God's grace and his love. And so Jonah was afraid that if he goes and prophesies to the Ninevites, they might actually repent and God might relent on his judgment and God might show compassion to them. And and Jonah hated the Ninevites. And see, he didn't want to see that happen. And so Jonah ran as far as humanly possible away from God's will for his life. Jonah got on a ship, set sail for Tarshish, 2,000 miles away from Nineveh, trying to run from God, trying to get as far away from God's will for him as he possibly could. He rebelled against the Lord. And as we saw last week, God pursued Jonah. God, in his grace, pursued Jonah out across the ocean. God sent a storm, and in the midst of that storm, in the turmoil of that raging sea, The sailors began to, you know, cry out, who's responsible for this? And they discovered that it was Jonah and his disobedience, his rebellion. And so Jonah admitted that he had rebelled against God. And the sailors on board that ship threw Jonah overboard in a desperate chance to save their lives. And as Jonah was thrown into the sea, the storm calmed. And the sailors on board that ship ended up giving praise and making vows to the one true God of heaven. But now Jonah finds himself bobbing out in the open ocean. Jonah finds himself gasping for air, struggling in the waves, trying to keep his head above water. But Jonah's drowning out there in the seas. But you see, while Jonah had forsaken God, God had not forsaken Jonah. And our passage last week ended in verse 17 telling us that God sent a great fish to rescue Jonah. And so this is where we pick up our story this morning. Here in chapter 2, Jonah is now safely inside that miraculous fish that God sent to rescue him. He's gone from the hall of rebellion to the humpback of restoration. And there in the belly of this great fish, Jonah offers a remarkable prayer that we're going to look at this morning. It's a prayer that highlights the nature of God's great big love in deliverance. God's a God who comes to the rescue of lost and rebellious people. And so we're going to take a look at this prayer this morning, Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I want to come back after reading this, and I want to highlight for us three key truths that we see in this prayer. Three key truths about God's great big love in deliverance. Jonah chapter 2, from inside the fish... Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed has wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I sank down. The, the earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace That could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It's a great passage. Jonah's deliverance from the storm. And this miraculous fish. In this prayer that we read here in Jonah chapter 2, we see three powerful truths about God's great big love and deliverance. I want us to look at these truths this morning. I call them Jonah's declarations of deliverance. And we see three truths about God as our deliverer here in the prayer of Jonah. The first truth we see in our passage this morning is that God is sovereign over the sea, the wind, the waves, and even the whales. God is sovereign over the sea. Last week in our look at God's great big love and pursuit of rebels, we saw that God will sometimes send a storm to bring us to our senses. In other words, sometimes the storms we face in life are God's means of discipline to bring us out of our rebellion. And in our passage this morning, we see that Jonah echoes this truth as he highlights God's sovereign control over the sea. Jonah reminds us in his prayer that nothing about his situation was outside of God's gracious will and plan for his life. Do you believe that's true in your life, friends? That nothing about your circumstances are outside of God's will and plan for your life? It is true. Nothing happens to us that isn't first father-filtered. Now, if you recall from week one of our series in Jonah chapter one, verse four, we saw that the original Hebrew there literally reads, God hurled a storm at Jonah. I I love the imagery of this, right? You see see Jonah sailing across the Mediterranean Sea thinking he's free and clear and God's in heaven saying, you idiot, where do you think you're going? And God literally hurls a storm across the sea to bring Jonah to his senses. And in today's passage, in his prayer from inside the fish, we see Jonah declare here in verse 3 that it was God who hurled him into the sea. So not only did God hurl the storm at Jonah, but in verse 3, Jonah declares that it was God who hurled him into the sea. It wasn't the sailors that threw him overboard. Jonah recognized that that was all a part of God's will and plan for his life. God hurled me into the sea. Not only that, it was God who sent the waves and the breakers that threatened his very survival. Jonah says, your waves and breakers. The storm he was in, the ocean he was bobbing in, none of this was happening by coincidence. This was all part of God's plan for Jonah's life. As I said last week, the storm wasn't an accident. God used the sea, the wind, the waves, and now a whale to bring Jonah to the place of surrender. And in verse seven of our passage this morning, we read that as Jonah's life was ebbing away, Jonah says, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O Lord. Jonah finally remembered God. See, friends, God will do whatever it takes to bring us to the place where we remember him. He'll even send a storm if he has to. Sickness, failure, trials, even heartbreak. And through the storm that God hurled at Jonah, Jonah finally came to that place of surrender. Now, now I want you to, to think about this for a moment. We can learn something very important from Jonah's recognition of God's sovereignty here. See, in Jonah's prayer, we discover what true surrender looks like. In Jonah's prayer, we see what true surrender looks like. Friends, think about this. How do you know when you've moved from a place of rebellion against God to a place of genuine repentance in your relationship with God? Well, one of the primary indicators is that you stop running, trying to control your own destiny, and you start resting in the will and grace of the one who truly does. And you rest in God's perfect will and plan, even if it finds you in the belly of a whale. See, friends, please realize this. When Jonah prays this prayer here in chapter 2, these great words of praise, these these incredible words of thanksgiving, please understand this, Jonah's not back on dry land yet. Jonah's praying this prayer from inside the belly of a great fish. Jonah doesn't even know at this point if he's ever going to see land again. But you know something? Jonah praises God because he's come to recognize that there is no safer place to be than in the gracious care of God's perfect will and plan for his life. You know something, friends? Sometimes God will send you into the storm. Sometimes God will bring you into the belly of a whale. But as Jonah recognized, there's no safer place to be. Do you think Jonah would have preferred to have had a luxury cruise ship pick him up out in the ocean? I'm sure he would have, right? There is nothing pleasant about being in the, in the belly of a whale. But yet, Jonah recognized that that was God's sovereign plan for his life. That was God's means of salvation and deliverance. And so Jonah surrendered to the Lord. He stopped rebelling against God, and he accepted God's gracious plan and will for his life, and he praised the Lord, even in the belly of a whale. Friends, this is what true surrender looks like. Jonah is no longer a rebel on the run. He is now a prophet at peace. And let me ask you this morning, do you know that kind of peace? Are are you able to praise God in the midst of the storms in your life? Uh, Can you rejoice and and give thanks to God, even in the belly of a whale? See, friends, we can learn a lot from Jonah here. Jonah chapter 2 and Jonah's prayer teaches us that, that true security is found in surrender. And surrender comes when we put our trust in God's sovereign grace and his perfect will for our lives. That's where true security is found. Now I know what some of you might be thinking at this point, man, great sermon, Jason, but come on! Get serious, right? A whale? Nobody could survive in the belly of a whale for three days. This is ridiculous. So what about this whale? Anybody curious about this whale? As I said last week, this is probably one of the the main passages in scripture that skeptics point to to criticize the Bible. What a ridiculous, absurd story. What can we say about this whale? Friends, please understand this. Believing in Jonah's story is no more absurd than saying that God parted the Red Sea or rescued three men from a fiery furnace or helped a young shepherd boy face down a giant or that even raised a man from the dead. See, the reality is, if you know who the God of the Bible is, sending a great fish to rescue Jonah is easy. It's child's play. See, certainly the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing can commandeer a whale or a shark or some other miraculous fish to deliver Jonah. You see, it's only an anti-supernatural bias that would say, this story is impossible. But understand this, friends, if there's more to reality than just our three-dimensional natural world, and if God does exist, miracles like this aren't just possible, they're probable. We would expect to see a loving, all-powerful God superintend his creation in such a way that he brings about his will and plans for our lives. See, I would argue that, that the real absurdity is not the miracle of Joan and the whale. The real absurdity is denying the reality of a sovereign God who intervenes in the world and the affairs of humanity. You see, to believe that, you have to believe that everything in the universe comes from nothing. That life comes from non-life. That that random chance produces organization and complexity. That chemical reactions produce human interactions like love and compassion. Now friends, that's an incredible story. To say that all this just happened by chance. It reminds me of uh, 10 years or so ago, my dad and brother and I were teaching in Russia. And my dad was speaking on the scientific evidence for intelligent design and creation. We were speaking in universities all over Russia and uh, at one of our lectures, my dad did a Q&A session after his session on the scientific evidence for a creator. And a graduate student in physics stood up during the Q&A session and, and uh, in, in somewhat broken English basically said to my dad, Mr. Carlson, I don't care what you say, I'm still going to believe in atheism and evolution. Well, my dad, he rolled up his shirt sleeve that evening and he pointed to the wristwatch he was wearing. And he said to this young man, this graduate student in physics, he said, you see this wristwatch? He says, I went down to the junkyard. I found a bunch of rusty bent up twisted pieces of metal and I threw them into a shoebox. and I started shaking it. I shook it for a minute, shook it for an hour, shook it for a day, I just kept shaking. All of a sudden, blam, all the pieces flew together. It started ticking off 60 seconds a minute 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, telling the day and date, all by chance, amazing. Well, that graduate student in physics, he laughed at my dad. He said, that's impossible. My dad said, well, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that this watch by chance is impossible? And yet you'll tell me that this I This eye which sees in 3D and color, that this brain, a three-pound brain greater than any computer on earth, a three-pound brain with 120 billion cells, 130 trillion electronic chemical connections, is all a product of chance? See, I submit to you, friends, it takes far more faith to believe in atheistic evolution than it does to believe in a divine designer, a creator God. And see, the story of Jonah this morning reminds us that there is a God who is sovereign, who intervenes in our world. He is sovereign over the sea. He's sovereign over the wind, the waves, even the whales. But what's even more remarkable is that this God has a great big love for you. God cares about you. And that love is available to each and every one of us here this morning if we'll simply surrender and surrender our lives to his good and perfect will. The second declaration of deliverance we see in our passage this morning, Jonah reveals in his prayer that God is greater than the grave. And what an awesome truth this is. God is greater than the grave. Two weeks ago, last Sunday, was the two-year anniversary of 11-year-old Brooklyn Larson going home to be with the Lord. You may recall three weeks ago, her mom, Ginger, shared a powerful faith faith story with us right here on this platform. Ginger and her daughters, Katie and Brooklyn, were struck in the side of an intersection by another car. And Brooklyn, later that morning, went home to be with Jesus. And if you recall from Ginger's powerful faith story three weeks ago, Ginger made a, an incredible statement that's just really stuck with me the last three weeks. Ginger said, When you have a child in heaven, you tend to think a lot about heaven. You know, it's interesting to me the confidence in that statement. You know, a lot of people talk about heaven in this kind of flowery fairy tale type language. And for Ginger, that's not what it's about. It's about the confident assurance that she knows. Her daughter is with Jesus today. And I know that many of us here were incredibly blessed listening to Ginger's confident hope and the promise that we have of eternal life. Friends, where does that kind of confidence come from? How does someone look at a tragic death and see the hope of new life? I'll tell you something, friends, that kind of assurance comes only from Jesus Christ the conqueror of the grave, our deliverer over death. And you see, in our passage this morning, our passage this morning is more than just a message of how God rescued Jonah from the depths of the sea. It's a story pointing ahead to God's ultimate victory over death in the grave, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus in his own ministry, in Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus himself pointed to Jonah's deliverance from the sea in the belly of a huge fish as a sign pointing to his own resurrection. And friends, it's because of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus that we have the hope of eternal life. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, friends, for those who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, there is no fear in death. Death isn't extinguishing the light for the Christian. It's putting out the lamp. Because the dawn has come, its entrance into a whole new life. And this is why the Apostle Paul could confidently proclaim in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die, to die is what? It's gain. Paul says to die is gain. Friends, do you have that kind of confidence today? Do you have that assurance of eternal life? If you don't, Jonah's prayer here in chapter 2 is a powerful reminder to us that God is greater than the grave. Jonah and his rescue points us to our great deliverer, Jesus Christ. And if you'll trust in him, you too can have the confident assurance of everlasting life through his resurrection power. What an incredible blessing that is. The good news of deliverance. From the grave in Jesus Christ. The third declaration of deliverance we see in chapter 2 this morning is that our God is reliable in rescue. God is reliable in rescue. You know, friends, when the storms of life come, the only reliable source of rescue is our Heavenly Father. As Jonah proclaims here in verse 8 of our passage this morning, Jonah says all other gods are worthless idols. All other gods are worthless idols. Now, what's Jonah talking about here? What, what, what does he mean by, by other gods? Well, friends, Jonah is talking about idolatry. He's talking about idolatry, and it's something that we're all susceptible to. You see, you need to understand this morning, idolatry isn't just placing a gold statue in some corner of your home. What is idolatry? Idolatry and idols, friends. Idols are literally anything you love, trust, or desire more than God. That's idolatry. It's putting your love, your trust, or your desire in anything else other than God. And Jonah says that these things are worthless to us. He calls them worthless idols. How are they worthless? They're worthless because they will always fail you when the storms of life come. What are the idols going to do for you? A lot of people put their hope in the security of their bank account. And yet so often money fails us. God says, I alone am the true source of security. So many people in our world put their hope in another person to be that source of love and and comfort. And yet so often our human relationships, even in great relationships, even in great marriages, so often our spouses let us down. But Jesus says, in me you'll find a love that will never let you down. So many people in our world look for joy and pleasure and things like sex and pornography and and drugs and alcohol, thinking that these kinds of things will, will give them peace and joy and fulfillment, and yet they always fail us. And Jesus says, true joy and peace and fulfillment is found in a relationship with me. See, Jonah understood that all of these other idols are worthless. They're really worthless when the storms of life arise. And, and, and you know, when you think about Jonah's predicament, it's really interesting. Jonah, Jonah had a number, number of options available to him that afternoon as he was bobbing along in the ocean. You know, he had some options available to him. Perhaps Jonah could have tried to save himself. Maybe Jonah could have said, you know what, I'm going to swim for it. I'm a strong guy. I've been working out, you know. I'm going to make it to shore on my own. Or or, or maybe Jonah could have hoped for a buoy to hang on to. Or or maybe a larger, more capable ship to come and rescue him. Or or maybe Jonah could have grabbed a bottle of wine before those sailors threw him overboard in an attempt to hopefully numb his pain as he sank into the depths. But at the end of the day, all of these options were worthless. Worthless. But friends, isn't that what we so often try to do? We put our hope in lesser things. We bob around the storm of, storm of life, clinging to every potential source of hope except the one that will truly save us. And as Jonah reminds us, these are all worthless idols. But more than that, Jonah goes on to declare in verse 8, Jonah says, when we trust in anything other than God, We literally forfeit the grace he's waiting to lavish on us. We forfeit the grace he's waiting to lavish on us. We look for love in other people, and God says, I'm your source of love. Don't forfeit that grace. We look for security and money and material possessions, and God says, that stuff is worthless. I'm your source of security. We look for joy and peace and all these worldly pleasures, and God says, true joy and true peace, you're only going to find it in me. Every time we pursue other things apart from God as our source of love and security and joy and pleasure, we literally forfeit the grace he's waiting to lavish on us. It's like if you were a man adrift out in the open ocean, and you're just trying to, trying to survive, trying to keep your head above water, and, and all of a sudden, a Coast Guard cutter pulls up, and the, the captain of the Coast Guard ship is ready to throw a life ring out to rescue you, and, and at the last minute, you say, No, I'm okay, Captain. I'm good. I got, I got this little piece of driftwood I'm floating on here. I'm good. Thanks anyway. How absurd. How ridiculous. But that's what we do, friends, every time we turn our back on our Heavenly Father and instead pursue the idols of this world. Jonah says they are worthless. And we literally forfeit the grace that God is waiting to lavish on us. How tragic. Jonah's declaration here in verse 8 reminds me of another story that Jesus once told. It's a story of a man who built his life on a very precarious foundation. It's found in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. See what Jesus is talking about here. This is exactly what we see in Jonah chapter two verse eight. When we pursue worthless idols, we forfeit the grace God is waiting to lavish on us. When we build our lives on a foundation of anything other than the truth of God's word and His will and His love for us. We're building our lives on a very flimsy foundation. You know, it reminds me of the stories we so often hear on the news of these homes down in Florida that fall into these sinkholes. You hear these stories on the news, right? How does that happen? You know, a homeowner finds this beautiful piece of land and they build this beautiful house and they think, man, we're going to have it made. We got this beautiful home, gorgeous yard, manicured landscaping. And then a few years go by and that home Collapses in on itself into the ground. Why? Because they built that home on a flimsy foundation. They built that home on a foundation of limestone, and that limestone in Florida easily is susceptible to water erosion. And it literally cracks away underneath the earth, and those sinkholes collapse. And the people find themselves and their homes destroyed because they built their house. On a weak foundation friends don't forfeit the grace that god is waiting to lavish on you by pursuing worthless idols don't build your life on a foundation that's waiting to collapse and leave you in desperation build your life on a sure and stable source of security Build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Like like the words of that great hymn declare, On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Instead of clinging to worthless idols, Jonah put his trust in the one true source of security, God's great big love. And he experienced God's faithfulness and deliverance. He was rescued from the storm and the sea. Now, friends, it might have been a bizarre rescue, right? I mean, he's in the belly of a whale. But the whale was God's means of delivering Jonah. It was God's gift of grace to Jonah. And so Jonah concludes his prayer here in verse 9 by proclaiming salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Friends, I want you to consider those words this morning. Take a look at these words. Salvation comes from the Lord. You know that there's never been a statement uttered or a sentence composed with more crucial significance to the human race. Salvation comes from the Lord. I want you to think with me this morning on what that simple statement implies. Number one, it implies that we need rescue. We need rescue. Why? Because as the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, all of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we need rescue. See, God is holy. God is righteous. He knows no sin. And yet all of us have fallen short. Like Jonah, we've all tried to run from God in rebellion. We've all rebelled against his will and plan for our lives. And the Bible calls that rebellion sin. And a holy God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so there's this chasm, there's this separation that exists between us and God. We need rescue. We need salvation. But the second thing that this simple statement implies is that a means of rescue has been provided. God has made a way. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul tells us that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul tells us that God has provided a means for our rescue. How did he do that? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And Jesus Christ, as God in human flesh, lived a perfect sinless life. He lived the life that none of us could live so that he could stand in our place as the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrificial lamb of God who took the sins of the world upon himself. Friends, when Jesus hung on that cross 2,000 years ago, he didn't just die a physical death, but he died a spiritual death where our sins were put on Christ and they were nailed to that cross. And he shed his blood in my place. He shed his blood in your place, paying the penalty for our sin so that we could be reconciled with God again. And as Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved. What is grace? It's a free gift. There's nothing you can do to to work for that, to earn it, to deserve it, to prove your worthiness. It's just a gift. God did it because he loves you. Because he's a God of great big love. And the means of accepting that gift is by faith in Jesus Christ. You put your hope in Jesus and you cry out to him and you say, Jesus, I need your rescue. I need your deliverance. The means has been provided. Lastly, this simple statement implies that there's only one way to be saved. Salvation comes from the Lord. He doesn't list 10, 12, 20 different options. Salvation comes from the Lord. All other gods are worthless idols. All other sources of security are are shifting sands. Salvation comes from the Lord. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the door. He's the way. He's the path that leads to life. And if you're not walking the Jesus path, you're forfeiting the grace that God is waiting to lavish on you. Don't make that mistake. See, friends, please understand this this morning. We cannot save ourselves. And the idols we so often cling to for hope, for security, for joy, they will always fail us in the end. As Jonah tells us, they are worthless. There is only one who is reliable and rescue. There is only one whose great big love is strong enough to save. And his name is Jesus. Let's close in order of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of deliverance through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are a God who in your great big love for us has provided a means of rescue. Lord, we thank you that even when we forsake you, you do not forsake us. When we find ourselves adrift in re- rebellion, when we find ourselves struggling against the storms of life, when we find ourselves crying out in desperation without any hope other than you, we find you. We find you as a faithful God who delivers his people. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the salvation that we have in you. Thank you for your deliverance over the grave. Thank you for not forfeiting your love for us so that we might not forfeit the grace that's available in your great big love. God, help us to cling to you as our only source of hope and security. Thank you, Jesus, for your great deliverance. If there's anybody here this morning who hasn't put their trust in you, I pray, God, that even right now, they might just say a simple prayer in the quiet of their own heart. Jesus, I need you to rescue me. This morning, I cry out to you. I'm lost. I'm adrift in my sin and my rebellion. I need your deliverance. And Jesus, would you rescue them this morning? Show them your faithfulness. Show them your grace. We thank you that you are a God who delivers desperate people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.